from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that draws his inspiration from the folly of youth and the fear of clowns. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novel, The Cotton Candy Massacre, and his newest work, The October Society, Season 2. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Christopher Robertson. Christopher, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. I really enjoyed the Cotton Candy Massacre for two reasons. The adult part of me liked the extreme violence, and the kid in me liked the story dynamic of the carefree teenagers running around a spooky midway. So it was a great story all the way around. Oh, thank you very much. And before we begin, listeners at home, if you have not read the Cotton Candy Massacre, this episode will be spoiler-heavy. So if you'd like to read the book beforehand, all links will be in the description and make sure to leave a review on Amazon and or Goodreads. That being said, let's dive into this podcast. So uh, the legend of the death of Bonko the Clown and the resulting creation of the cotton candy is a great concept for a horror story. Was this story inspired by books or movies from a particular time period? And if so, which time period? So that Cotton Candy Massacre is very much a love letter to two forms of movies from the 80s, the sort of teen comedy, romantic comedy movies, and obviously horror movies. It kind of it kind of popped in my head as, what if Toby Hooper and John Hughes went to a carnival and took some LSD? <laughs> that's, that's an accurate summation. So what uh, what particular movies would you say... There's quite a few references, like Rocky's outfit when he's getting ready at the star. He initially dresses like Johnny Depp from Elm Street with the crop top. Okay. Which uh, his friend Cliff points out, says, look like Freddy's coming for you, dude. Because <laughs> these are these are, these are are kids that know horror movies. Like, uh-huh. like, I was a kid that knew horror movies, so these are kids that know horror movies. And his, his penultimate outfit he ends up settling on is very much an homage to Kevin Bacon's outfit from Footless. And... But the character himself is kind of an amalgamation of a lot of 80s teen heartthrob types. It's kind of a Kevin Bacon, Johnny Depp type, 
thought of a bit of Ferris Bueller thrown in mm-hmm. with the, the attitude. His wild run through the first half of the book, where he's pretty much on the run for most of his time in the, the first half of his journey through Bonkos. It's very much like inspired by Ferris Bueller's mad dash at the end of this film. Okay. And so did the names kind of evolve from those movies? The names of the characters in your book? Uh, oh, there's a fun story with the names. Uh, <laughs> before, before I came up with the, I had this sort of idea of germinating and I just got a new apartment and I've got a fridge <laughs> and the brand of the fridge was candy. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's cool. I like that. I could be a name of a character somewhere. And for a while, it was sitting in my head, like, who could Candy be? Who could she be? And when I started putting the Cotton Candy Massacre together, I was like, this is going to be my most stupid book yet. Like, this is the <laughs> dumbest idea I've done. Everyone's got to have like ridiculous names or stupid names. So I'm like, like Candy, what could her boyfriend be? It's like, what's well, this good 80s name? Rocky. And I went, oh, yeah. And the second name could be Rhodes, you know, Rocky Road and Candy Barton. And then. Um, I ended up sending to my partner, I said, what do you think about like Rocky and Cliff for the two guys? And like, she just sent me a face palm emoji. Because <laughs> <laughs> like Cliff Bar, like the, the candy, the chocolate as well. So, so a lot of them have uh, names that are drawn from things like that. Only my partner is the one who named Ruth. She, named, she wanted to name her after two different true crime podcasters. I'm not sure which ones, I can't remember. But we thought, because she's so obsessed with crime and infamy and stuff like that, we thought that would be a cool note. Dude, my fiancé is too. It makes you scared, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like my, worrying. <laughs> my fiancé loves to cook, but sometimes I'm terrified of eating her food. I'm afraid it's poison. <laughs> well, I met my partner actually through my books, and she always jokes that one day she'll just murder me and make me super famous and stuff. <laughs> my books sell really well. She I says, got you. But, no, but not until not I'm a little bit older, so. Okay. Yeah. You got to... Got to put a few more works out, get a good bibliography yeah. before you go. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm firing the books out so fast. I don't know when she's coming for me. Let's <laughs> finish the October Society series before I get to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely need some time. So was Bonko the Clown based on any real life criminal, speaking of true crime? And if so, who? So Bonko was partly inspired by the serial killer and criminal Donald Peewee Gaskins. I have not heard of him. As far as like serial killers go, he's quite an, uh, I don't know if I'm using the right word, but he's a very larger than life character uh-huh. for a man who's like five foot tall. Okay. So even the, the height was true to life. The height obsession in the Cotton Candy Massacre is basically because I'm a quite a short man myself. And well. I wanted to <laughs> finally put a little bit of representation for us shorties in it. Nice. So, both Bonko and Candy are deliberately made to be little. Okay, gotcha. I also had like teased the idea maybe Candy could be uh, related to Bonko somehow, but I eventually just ditched that idea. Okay. So tell me a little bit about Pee Wee Gaskins. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. So he boasted roughly killing about 100 people. I think like between 13 and 15 actual murders were attributed to him. He was not a pleasant, like no serial killer is pleasant, but he targeted women, he targeted children. He's more of an opportunist killer rather than, like, say, like Ted Bundy, who methodically had a type and but hunted certain, like, a certain type of target. Mm-hmm. But Gaskins was involved in a lot of other crime. He spent a lot of time in prison. He would frequently just make up stuff. Like, he would refer to the strongest man in prison as a power man. And, like, there's no record of that being a proper prison term from that time period. Mm-hmm. So, it seems like he just made stuff up. He had his own catchphrase, and um, that's the final truth. He had 
a true crime writer do his memoirs while he was in prison called The Final Truth, which seems to be mostly just a book of bragging and lies. Wow. And he like contracted somebody to do this? Someone, yeah, wrote it. He's like, they contracted him for prison and he wrote the book for him. He took all his stories and published them. So Bonko's own sort of catchphrase, that's the toot toot and truth, was inspired by the, that's the final truth that Wee would often cap off any statement he made that he felt was definitive. He would be like, that's the final truth. I'm going to have to look him up. So it sounds like he didn't kill like most serial killers do for the thrill of it or the control or power. He did it mostly to commit other crimes, like silence witnesses. It was involved in a lot of other crimes, but I think he would happen to be the case if he was a criminal gangster or wannabe gangster, but also a serial killer, like the way that the Iceman was, like a hitman for the mafia, but also he had all the markings of a serial killer. It just happened that both Pee Wee's criminal sides meshed together because I said he didn't target a certain type. He mostly targeted younger women, stuff like that. Um, but he definitely field seemed to be more of an opportunist, even though he had serial killer tendencies. Okay. And he also like had a little bit of a time we did spend like working in carnivals and stuff like that. Sort of how I made the connection. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look him up. Bonko was like, what if Pee Wee was actually successful in his criminal endeavors? Mm-hmm. You know, prior to Bonko's downfall, he ran a very successful criminal enterprise out of his carnival. Well, the character of Marie as a fortune teller is one of the main staples of the carnival midway that give it, in my opinion, such a mysterious atmosphere. What other elements of the midway atmosphere do you think give it mystery and intrigue, the prime factors for a, a really good horror story setting? So carnivals are sort of like a nexus of all walks of life. If you think like it's kind of place where parents could take their children, young couples will go on dates, but historically it's also places where drugs, prostitution, various criminal elements also merged. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of like a great intersection of so many aspects of life. You've got the bright lights, you've got all the colorful wholesomeness and then right under that you've got a lot of seedy grime a lot of dirt mm. so beneath that sort of veneer of wholesomeness there's danger and for me that's like horror as well like we go watch horror movies or we love horror movies but there's just that veneer of them being a little bit wrong or a little bit nasty or a little bit not shameful but you're drawn to that darkness it's beneath something appealing yeah, I guess probably one of the prime reasons there's so much crime, or at least something that would be advantageous to them, is the fact that they're constantly on the move. Like, if a crime's committed, it takes, you know, some investigation and some footwork to track certain people down and so on. And if they're constantly on the move, then you get into, like, city and state jurisdictional limitations and all kinds of stuff, so... You're obviously more versed in it than I am. That is a common thing with like present day carnivals. There's a lot of crime that uh, goes I along with it. I wouldn't them. know about present day carnivals. I was mostly extrapolating from sort of historical stories. And yeah, like I guess even as far as the 80s, it's a bit different. Obviously, I'm from Britain, I'm from Scotland. So I'm researching via secondhand sources because carnivals and fun fairs are very different here. We don't have as many, they're not as like prevalent they don't it hasn't happened that much they'll be like in the parking lots of big malls and things like that and they'll be very heavily like regulated yeah same here as far as being in the parking lots of malls and such it's just been so long you know <laughs> I, 
I think the reason it's probably been so long since I've been to one is the last time I was at one, it was in the, I think it was in the parking lot of a Kroger, uh, which is a supermarket here. And we were getting on something that was kind of like a looping starship, just something on an axis that slowly rocked back and forth until it went upside down. And some young child had gotten nauseous and thrown up in it. <laughs> so instead of cleaning it, the guy running it literally ran it unoccupied, turned it upside down and let all the vomit drip through and drip down. <clears throat> like that was how he got the majority of the chunks out, I guess. I'm putting that in the sequel. Yeah, me and this girl that I was with were like, eh, let's just find something else to do. And then I've always wondered about these carnivals travel from city to city. God knows how many they cover in a year. So these somewhat dangerous rides are constantly taken down and put back up. And I wonder how many times they put it together and there's parts. They're like, where do these go again? Ah, oh, fuck it. You know, <laughs> we don't really need that one. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> um, so one of the movies, it was like a 80s movie, it's a big inspiration to me. So I'm a big fan of Toby Hooper, obviously with the Toby Hooper, John Hughes fusion. Um, and Toby Hooper's The Fun House features this this side of carnival life and, and carny life that I really like. It's literally you've got two young couples on date there, but there's a like a girly show going on and there's like people perving through the tent and there's like, you know, burlesque and striptease performances going on and going back, like I, I was reading how like these would also be fronts for prostitution. It would be in certain towns, certain places. Other places they wouldn't even do the show because maybe they were more religious communities or something like that. But in other places they would. I just found out, I found a lot of fascinating stuff, like um, like reading into the histories and different types of carnivals. Like there were ones that were fixed location, ones that travelled, ones that sort of had like a home base, but parts of it would travel. So that's why I ultimately decided that Bonkins Bonanza would be like a fixed location one, with the possibility that if I ever that they could have travelled various times. But I kind of it fitted with the idea of Bonko having this enclosed, almost like crime fortress, like a compound. Yeah, like there's like it's isolated. It's out in the woods. It's nowhere nobody can really get near there. He's everything's just kind of safe, mm-hmm. safe for him at least. It's like he's like you know lord of this little piece of land. Yeah, it's like his fiefdom. <laughs> yeah, the cops aren't exactly going to run in and raid a carnival. They'd be running through like all these parents and kids and stuff. He's like hiding a lot of it. Yeah, you talk about them not doing the uh, burlesque or you know girly shows in certain areas because of the religious atmosphere. The uh, founder of the Church of Satan was a carny, and he didn't talk much about like any kind of crime going on, but he talked about how they'd have the carnival set up, but sometimes there would be revival tents set up close by. I guess they would be like these fairground areas where they would set up. So you'd have a carnival here, and then you'd have a revival tent over here preaching hellfire damnation. And he would always notice that a lot of the same men that were at the revival tent would end up at the girly shows. <laughs> <laughs> I would maybe wonder if sometimes if it was the same carnival running both the revival. Like yeah. Maybe in some town they're like, okay, well, this is a religious town. So um, put on your nun outfits. No, not those nun outfits. Mm, yeah, no, no, not the naughty ones. <laughs> and then... Then the same guy that, I don't know what you would call him, the guy that said, step right up, see the bearded lady or whatever. You the know, barker. That, that, yeah, the barker, is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's the same guy that does the the preaching at the revival tent. <laughs> or the talker. There's loads of cool names. I love all the carny slang. Yeah. I think in my first draft, I had way too much carny slang, and my early readers were like, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And they're like, you just made up the candy butcher thing. I went, no, that's what they were called. So you're talking about like beta readers? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, 
being someone who really loves a well-crafted villain, I would have to say my favorite character is Ruth. And just from the description, she seems like she's this perfect storm of dominatrix and tyrannical dictator. So I don't know if you can do it without giving any spoilers, but if you can, did she know what was going to happen once she ate the candy and orchestrated the Big Top Show, or was she misled by the ghost? So Ruth is essentially inspired by the very sanitized version of P.T. Barnum from The Great Showman. Okay. You know, hence the musical chapter, which there's a fun story behind the creation of that chapter. Um, so she is ultimately, the same way that P.T. Barnum was in that movie, blinded by the light, the idea of fame, but with her route to it, it's through infamy, whereas Barnum, that version of Barnum, it was through outrageousness and showmanship. So Ruth didn't have any idea what would happen. She was like, as drawn to it as some other people were, but I wouldn't feel that she's manipulated because this is exactly what she would have wanted. And um, without spoiling it, it, she very much believes she gets what she wants by the end. Okay. So she's inspired by P.T. Barnum, but like the... I guess her sexy dominatrix-like dress. Where did you come up with that? Oh, that was my partner. She sent me the outfit. She said, uh, wouldn't Ruth look good in this? Oh, okay. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that works. As well, sometimes when we're uh, when I'm working on books on the earlier versions, I'll, um, I'll like sort of cast the characters, various actors. Mm-hmm. And I would need to look up her name. I've forgotten. I can look it up quickly. But... The actress we had in mind for Ruth would be, she was from the television series of Fargo. I saw the movie. I did not see the television series. Alison Tolman. Let's see. was who we had in mind for Ruth. Take a look here. Okay. So hair tied back in a bun, Alison Tolman. Yeah. Okay. Her character's a lot nicer in Fargo than she than she would be in this. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So is the reaction to the cotton candy completely supernatural? And you don't have to say what that reaction is. Or is there some basis for it grounded in the material world? And the reason I ask is because of what seems to be the antidote for it. Um, so, you know, you're catching me out here because I don't really think things through. Um <laughs> I know, you know, I'm very detailed and technical, and I find when I try to ask writers detailed technical questions, you know, they're not scientists, they're artists. So they're like, well, this is the way my mind works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I had a snag where I was halfway through the book when I realized a cotton candy machine can't do what happens in the first chapter. It's just not even physically <laughs> possible. So I had to like retcon a whole, this is like a special machine made by a serial killer and stuff like that, just to add that extra level of ick to it as well. Because like, yeah, this can happen. But also, I the book operates on 80s movie logic, so I had to keep telling myself, I don't need to make it make sense in the real world. I need to make it make sense if you were watching a cheesy 80s film. So I'm the type of writer that doesn't plan anything when I write. Um, or maybe have a few set pieces or key images in my head that I want to get to. Sometimes I get to them, sometimes I don't. Sometimes they're not at all what I thought they'd be when I get to them. I always had the idea of the cotton candy doing what it does. But the idea of it, um, the way it counteracted and stuff, that came up as I got to that part of writing. And it just clicked for me as the clowns of the Cotton Candy Massacre are essentially what I called were clowns. And so this is their silver bullet. Okay. 
Gotcha. I, I could also imagine that the evil that happens with that cotton candy machine is soaked into the sugar crystals within it, and yeah, the insulin helps break that down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like the way you just described your writing is it's kind of a stream of consciousness. Do you outline it all, or is it no. just like you have an idea and it just goes? If the idea doesn't take hold of me, then I'll, I'll end up not doing it or ditching it. Like I've got maybe four or five ideas for different things that are sitting in my head at the moment. Usually when I sit down at my laptop to write, if it doesn't want to come out, then I'll just skip it and move on to the next thing. For instance, I've been trying to write a story. It's essentially a zombie burlesque road trip for a while. Zombie burlesque road trip. Yeah. All right, I'm game. Let's hear it. <laughs> and uh, I just, I keep sitting down to do it and it just doesn't come together the way I want it to. But eventually I know it will when I get the right like extra ingredient that will make it work. I had to wear clouds in my head for quite a while I wanted to do and it was until a couple of other ideas gelled together. I was like, yes, this is the one. Okay. This, is, this is what I want to do. It sounds like you don't ever really end up with projects that you start and then just scrap. It's just, you know, like right in the beginning that it's not quite taken full shape but it eventually will. Because I know yeah, I, think, I, I talk to a lot of writers that are like, oh, I've got like five unfinished novels in my desk drawer or something like that. If I can get past the first chapter, it'll get finished. Or if it's a shorter piece, if I can get like the first like thousand words down, then I know it's going to go all the way to the end. But I also know it's going to like take over me. So The Cotton Candy Massacre, I started writing, I think around about November of last year. And I completed that first draft before New Year's. Rewind that. You started when? November. November. Last year. I finished on New Year's Eve, the first draft. Wow. Like, Interesting. It was just, they would pour out me. It'd be like 20,000 words a week sometimes. Good God, man. Sounds like it's just fighting to get out of your head. I would work really long hours on it. Like I would get in from work and I would be at it all day and stuff. And I feel bad when I'm not writing lots of things because I'm like, oh, I'm not being productive and stuff. And then I have to tell myself, you put out three books in one year to so stop it. Yeah. That's one thing that I have trouble with. If I do any kind of writing, I have to do it first thing in the morning because after the, you know, like at the end of the day, my brain is just fried. And you and quite a few other people that I know that write, you know, have day jobs, they say they do it after they come home from work. I'm like, how do you have the mental capacity to create? My work's a bit unusual. I do long, long 24-hour shifts, sleepover shifts. Really? So, yes, I, I work with adults with disabilities. Oh, okay. So I'll be away for like a whole day at a time sometimes. Okay. So you're like a, what do they call them? Provider? Healthcare provider? Sort of. It's like all aspects of our life. So like financial, social, mental well-being, helping them live life to the fullest. Awesome. So there's tough days and then there's days where like my job literally consists of taking people to see movies. Like if I've got one person who's like a big fan of the Halloween franchise and is dead excited to see Halloween ends and I'm like, well, if I must, I mean... <laughs> If I have to get paid for going and yeah. watching Halloween, then we'll just. <laughs> That's nope, awesome. we need the VIP seats. Yeah, no. Him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You get. Oh, that's awesome. So mm, I'm in the wrong line of work. I'll get in from work at like 10 in the morning and I'll have like the day ahead of me. So I'll do that. Or if I have a day off, I generally do like I'd get up early enough. I'd walk the dog. I'd do a workout. Mm. And then. I'd like enough discipline to say to myself, okay, you're going to work from now till like five o'clock. But sometimes when the story's fresh in my head and it's the first draft, I can see me going all the way to like nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night and not stopping. Good God. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, 
circling back to the novel, the tug of war between Lei, is it pronounced Lei? That's what I've been Lee. saying. Lee. Okay. Yeah. The tug of war between Lee and Rocky over candy is interesting because on one side you have Rocky that has this immature teenage idea of love for candy. And on the other side, you have what I would say is like desperate codependent love that seems to be the product of Lee's fear of abandonment from the trauma involved with her parents. So even though Candy had two people vying for her affection, she seemed to have this debilitating sense of weakness and self-loathing. What was that aspect's role in driving the story forward? So she sort of personifies the key theme of the Cotton Candy Massacre, which is you're not necessarily within what you appear without. So Candy, to all outside sources, she should have everything. She's got the dreamy boyfriend. She's got the kick-ass best friend. She clearly comes from a family that's got, that are comfortable. You know, she's got this really cool bedroom with these neon lights and everything like that. It's very easy. It's very whatever. And she's sort of a person who's always just been able to coast through life because she's very attractive and she's very lucky in the positions that she's been in. So the fact that early on in the book, you find out that she's not getting into college, that she's just never had to work for things like that. She's never learned that skill set. But another part of her character was that we can look at someone and think, well, you're very attractive, you're very good looking, you've got money, you should be happy. But that's not how mental health works. Like mental health, like it's a field I work in. Mental health is something else. Like you can have objectively everything in the world that should make you happy, but your brain chemistry is just not allowing it. And with the, the idea of the wear clowns, I wanted to do like. I'm sorry, when you say brain chemistry, are you talk about like organic clinical type depression or just. It could be both. Um, okay. Yeah. It's something that's drawn from my own sort of perspectives and experiences in life where I've seen this in quite a personal way, like, you should be happy. You should be happy, but you're not. And you can't force yourself to be happy even if everything in life's telling you you should be. Um, and when I started this sort of idea of, like, the were clowns, it was essentially I wanted to do a werewolf story, but I don't want to do werewolves. I wanted to do something, like, kind of silly, kind of kind of goofy. So when I thought of, like, a, a were clown, a werewolf is like the beast within your animalistic urges and things like that. So I thought, what well, is a clown? The clown's like drawn from sort of the full archetype. And they're like a representation of what makes us happy or joyful. So my idea is whenever a character would become a were clown, they are being overcome by the thing that gives them pleasure in life. So for certain characters, it's being wanted and needed by others. For other characters, it's actually very masochistic. <laughs> for you know one character in particular it's just candy and sweets and nice things because that's all she really wants mm -hmm. so if i'm understanding or kind of getting the idea of who you're talking about correctly one of the things i wanted to know about is can you tell me about the real life sully the clown so she seems first, like an interesting lady <laughs> when i first joined instagram many many years ago um Sully was one of the first accounts I remember following because I thought her makeup and her character designs were incredible. And there was always just this complete sense of fun about the various clown characters that she portrays. So she's got a couple of different clown characters she portrays. 
but the Sully one was definitely the one I was drawn to the most. She seemed to be the one that's having the most delightful fun doing horrible things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I started putting ideas together and started to like think about the Cotton Candy Massacre, I got it in my head to just message her and say, hey, I'm like an indie writer. I'm currently thinking of doing a book about like killer clowns running around a carnival, like murdering people. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it'd be cool if I could like name a character after you, like, you know, put your character design in it. And she was so sweet. She was so happy. She was so overwhelming. Like I offered to pay her and she was like, no, 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 no. Just please let me be in the book and stuff like that. And uh, you can send me a copy of it. And I was like, all right, cool. So originally Sally was going to be a smaller character. This is her on the cover, right? Yeah. Yeah. So she's going to be a smaller character. And the more I was writing it, the more the character refused to behave. Mm Mm-hmm. Like she refused to not steal scenes. She was like taking over scenes that she wasn't supposed to take over. She was supposed to die. I had it in my head. I was writing the scene. And, oh, okay, this is where Sully dies much earlier in the book. So um, she was meant to get it not long after a meeting with the main characters. And she just refused. Then she got on. No, she she stuck around for a long, long part of that. Yeah, book. she just kept coming back. Yeah. So um, there was two requirements the real life Sully gave me. Um, she said the character, she should be obsessed with bananas and make her spicy. Obsessed with bananas and spicy, like figuratively, like just. Yeah, like. Okay. She, but, um, I already had Mari in head as being like this burlesque Dita Von Teese type clown. Oh, God. Yeah. So I made sure that I didn't want to just repeat that with Sully's character, but I think I got her the right level of. She's kind of naughty, but in a fun, silly kind of way. Mm. So I looked at Sully the Clown's Instagram profile as well as followed her. And does she just do that kind of like as an artistic project or does she actually perform in some way? Uh, I think it's mostly an artistic project. She's a makeup artist. Oh, yeah, that's right. I read that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was wondering how you wrote from the female perspective so well. Then I found in the acknowledgments that you had some help. So can you tell us about the process of working with the women that you mentioned to uh, develop the dynamics of these female characters in a genuine way? So the Cotton Candy Massacre actually started as a joke, like I sort of said. (laughs) My now partner, Casey, I wrote it as both to wind her up and my long-term best friend and beta reader, Craig. Craig always cameos in all my books as Walker. This is his second name, and he's obsessed with truck simulator games. I enjoy a good simulator game. They're very relaxing, but he's the go-to guy for simulator games, and he loves his truck one. So in My Zombie Sweetheart, I had him cameo as a trucker, Mm -hmm. and it's just blown up from there. Like He got a speaking part in Virgin Night, and now he got a whole scene in technically two scenes in Cotton Candy. Eventually, you know, I have to give him his own book. (laughs) he's not keen on spiders i'll do something with that nice he's kind of overcome his phobia they they both hate clowns (laughs) and so i wrote i was like this yes i'm just gonna do this to wind you up because i know you'll be to read it and you'll do all the reading but it'll be horror for it be torture but i met casey when she won a copy of my zombie sweetheart my first book she won that last year and we became almost instant friends Hmm. like we're messaging talking about book stuff we became very close very good friends to the point that we're now together and when I was writing, I started writing the characters, put the characters in my head. I had this idea for 
I wanted to have like a, a character who wasn't quite comfortable with her sexuality, hadn't realized it yet. And I hope Casey doesn't mind, but Casey is um, also bisexual. So I wanted to do this character sort of for her. And having like written like a gay male lead in Virgin Night, like the previous novel, I wanted to continue writing characters who were outside my own like realm of experience. So the idea was I would write the stuff and she would just tell me if I was getting it wrong or, or, or making mistakes or stop me from doing something that was going to like either be childish or fetishist or insensitive. I was actually surprised that she didn't have to like check me once. She just said it always felt genuine all the way through. Like I think it like sort of turned out that like we've all had maybe the experience of falling for someone or being in love with someone that we don't think we should be or that it goes against what we think we are and what we think we want and it makes us realize things about ourselves and uh maybe there's something universal in that that i was able to translate into the character i've definitely done that i've definitely fallen for people that i shouldn't have and people that ended up being not good for me or people it's like well, i don't understand why i like this person but i do so i think with all my characters i try and write like a range of different characters i'm always interested in writing characters that are different from myself but i try and write a person first and write about you know, them just on a personal level rather than think about like aspects of their identity. Sometimes it's, it's very relevant to the story and what they're going through. Like the, the gay character in Virgin Night faces tremendously horrific homophobia in that book. And that's something that I knew people that experienced that growing up in the 90s. Like I was friends with someone who went through something similar to what the character of Caleb goes through in that book. And I wanted to like not replicate, but shine a light on the, yeah, that's how things were. Okay. Well, I haven't read your other books, but from reading the descriptions, it seems like your characters are usually young people. So what is it about writing from that perspective that you like? Uh, probably because I'm very immature myself. <laughs> Same. <laughs> My fiance is much younger than me. It's because she's mature for her age and I'm very immature for mine. <laughs> uh, I think there's a couple of reasons I'm drawn to it. It was definitely subconscious at first, but... It's something I've realized I do more and more. And so I've sort of like retroactively researched it and looked into why I do it or why it's prevalent. And it's a couple of sort of thoughts I have. A lot of my books are written to be the simulate the experience of watching a movie. So like I use like filmic language and I use like a specific tense and a specific style that's sort of trigger what's considered head cinema. Emphasize show a lot more than tell. Yeah, because I noticed that you, um, I forget the verbiage you used, but you would cut to you yeah. were constantly switching scenes like, you know, you could envision the picture that you had generated of the scene that you were writing about all of a sudden just kind of changed like you were watching a movie, like cinematography or editing or something like that. Yeah, that was something that started as an accident and then it was intentional. It's mm -hmm. like that it's become intentional, but it was an accident with my first book. But um. Because like it's meant to be like a movie. A lot of these movies, especially in the 80s and 90s, they, they featured like teenage characters, like Scream, we think of, iconic slasher movie. They were in high school. Like they were high school kids. Like obviously they didn't look like high school kids playing them. It was like 30 year olds playing them, but still. <laughs> were they that you old? Know, My God. I don't know. Maybe. No, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Some of them looked. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't think Billy didn't look like a high school kid to me. He looked like a guy in his 20s. Yeah. At least. So those movies typically focused on younger characters. And mm -hmm. like the reason for that was that like studio executives and production companies, they realized that like a big part of their audience was like couples going on dates on like the weekend and stuff like that. 
in the eighties, like there was a lot of experimentation with the slasher movie and the horror movie formula. Like after Halloween, there was like this sort of scramble to figure out what it was about the Halloween formula that made the film so successful. So you had like some people doubling down on it, or maybe it's because it's the seasonal aspect. So let's do graduation day, April Fool's Day, let's focus on days. And other people were like, well, maybe it's the babysitter angle, maybe it's the young characters, maybe it's the mask, maybe it's the signature weapon. There was like a lot of like experimentation to narrow down the formula. Yeah, it sounds like they did a lot of research. <laughs> it was more like, oh, this made a ton of money. What, what, how did it work? Quick, 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 let's do it. Let's try this, let's try this. Some of it worked, some of it didn't work. Eventually the formula sort of made. And like, yeah, I think one of the things they, they discovered from that was, yep, typically these movies do better with younger audiences, with younger characters for younger audiences. It's funny because even back in like the 19, like my first novel set in the 1950s, and even back then, it still would have been like probably young couples going to see these movies. They just didn't portray them as much. So like a lot of 50s horror is like, military or scientists or doctors and things like that like the only really big notable exception is the classic movie the blob which was very notable for having steve mcqueen as the lead character in it it was about teenagers that probably could be seen as the start of that trend even in the 50s it was still a guy with a crew cut trying to bring his best gal and get her scared so he could put his arm around her <laughs> some things never change yeah <laughs> We just got a little bit more creative with the movies we do. We used to just have giant ants. Now uh -huh. we've got Art the Clown. So it's just on that note as well. All my stories involve a degree of heartbreak and romance. And I feel like that kind of fits that age group better. Like obviously everyone at any age can experience this stuff. And romance is like, I'm an example of it. In my late 30s and I've found someone that means the world to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm behaving like a teenager again. But... <laughs> I like writing that stuff. It comes naturally to me when I write, and I just feel like those characters like carry those themes better. I'm trying to do something a little bit different with my next full novel. My next two novels actually feature older characters, so I'll see if they're total flops and nobody likes them. I'll just go back to killing more teenagers. <laughs> well, so is there going to be a sequel to this book? Because I think it, it says, uh, I thought I saw something like number one, series one, something like that. So I tried to create a series for that and the short story, but because the short story is not like a numbered entry in the series, it's considered supplemental. It doesn't show up when you click on the series. Oh, okay. So it's supposed to be, so you would get the short story as well. It would come up as part of the series. Oh, okay. Yeah. But there's the intent to hopefully. The reason I ask is because I want to know what happens to little Stacy. <laughs> well, funnily enough, she would exactly be what the, I don't know if it'd be the full on, sequel i kind of like this idea of doing like a shorter novella length sequel to both cotton candy and virgin night at some point because i think there's more in those settings that i could do and explore but maybe not on the same scale for now as like a full-on novel but cotton candy i definitely have like an idea for a story that takes place maybe several months after the events of the cotton candy massacre where our surviving heroine is trying to track Stacy down almost as a redemption for her failures. Obviously, she did perform some heroic actions during the book, but she ultimately failed other people and left someone behind, i.e. Stacy, left behind. She's missing. So I wanted to have an idea of her trying to track Stacy down as a form of recompense and maybe visit some other locations from other books as like the way you sort of bridge gaps. I like to like bridge the gaps between the books and show the other locations. And 
possibly introduce a key character who would be central to the full-on sequel I have in mind, which would not feature as many of the characters returning from the first book, just so that I could be free to like do a lot more with them than like continuing Lee's story. I feel like she's kind of reached not quite the end of her journey as a character, like an emotional journey, but maybe with the Stacy story she would. I'm also scared of writing sequels because I'm sure I'll mess it up. <laughs> well, I think I have an idea, but I'm not sure. Who was your favorite character to write and why? Oh, that's like asking me to choose my favorite child. I mean, we all, <laughs> obviously parents have a favorite child. They just don't like to admit it. Yeah, they just don't want to say, well, you can't yeah. upset any of these if they're <laughs> fictional. <laughs> Oh, that's right. They're based on some that are based. <laughs> Holy shit. I completely forgot that they're based on real people. All right. So uh, maybe <laughs> we, you just love all of them equally. I so, don't want Sully to come after me. She looks like she could fuck some shit up. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 she's stateside. So, I mean, no where are you? shit. I'm not saying where I am. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Sully, I love you. I, I don't know you, but please don't hurt me. <laughs> Just leave some bananas out. You'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> I've got all kinds of bananas. <laughs> um, oh, and I wrote my first book. I had a villainous character. Not like the villainous character, but she was um, very mean, girly, very nasty. I had tremendous fun writing how horrible she was. And I firmly regretted killing her off so quickly. And I think I went through like a, what Robert Kirkman had when he was doing The Walking Dead and he wrote The Governor and it kills the governor off like at the end of his storyline art spoilers for, you know, like almost 10 year old Walking Dead storyline. He regretted that a great deal because he liked having this bad guy around. Mm -hmm. So when he introduced Negan, he was like, no, Negan is staying around. So he wanted to have a character who was, I think Robert Kirkman's method of choosing who dies in his books, The Walking Dead was just a roll of dice. And whoever comes up, the number comes up, there comes up. But I think Negan might have been exempt from that because he wanted to have Negan going for a long, long time. <laughs> and I get that now, like writing the villains and writing the bad guys is tremendous fun. Yeah. When I did Virgin Night, I had them sort of a mean girl character throughout the whole book. And I was like, honestly, she was so evil and I loved writing her. And everyone loves to hate her. Everyone hates her when they read it. And it's like, what? Oh, she's such a horrible person. No, like, I know. <laughs> But Virgin Knight was more about good guys. Like it's like a group of friends band together against the great evil. Cotton Candy is kind of like the flip side of that, where it's more focused on it's got the hero characters, but it's focused heavily on the bad guys or the monsters. Because mm -hmm. there's an element of like tragedy to all of them, mm -hmm. like the wear clowns. And I think for that reason, is because I was writing both a villain and because she was tremendous fun. I had so much fun with the Sully character. It's probably partly why she didn't get killed off earlier on. And she would pop into scenes when I was writing and I didn't even intend for her to pop into them. Like there's a siege sequence later on in the book and I didn't even plan for her to be there and doing stuff. And the, the thing where she's constantly getting door slammed in her face again was just like a running joke that happened organically as I was writing it. <laughs> Which she absolutely pouts and stops around when it happens like the third, the third time. <laughs> Yeah, you're not the first person to say it's almost like you don't have control of your characters. They're like, no, they're going to do what they do regardless of your plans for them. One criticism I do see now and then for Cotton Candy Massacre is people sort of tend to wish I get into the mayhem a lot quicker. So I've had a few reviews pointing out that it's got a bloody opening chapter, but then you're maybe a hundred odd pages before the chaos really kicks in. And is this fully a thing I have with myself? I like to live in the worlds with the characters that I'm writing them. Virgin Knight's the same. It's the midway point of that book before Virgin Night even begins. 
Yeah, I mean, I like a kind of a slow burn anyway. You know? So some people like prefer like maybe a shorter book that gets to the point faster. And there's writers who absolutely do that so well, and I see why they like it. Like Aaron Beauregard, I'm a big fan of his books. Instant He's like gratification. <laughs> like every like, I would just finished reading um, Scary Bastard. It's like a Halloween slasher. And from about the third chapter onward, you're just getting mayhem, mayhem, mayhem. And it's he's got a great grasp of like giving you a bit of character, then a bunch of splatter. Have you read uh, All Smiles Until I Return? No, it's on my list. That's a pretty good one. I like that. I've done, I only just discovered him with the sort of the same TikToker who sort of helped Cotton Candy be noticed by people, a page casting witch, Nikki. She's amazing. She's such a fantastic person. She's done so much to help like people find my books. It's unreal. She kept like recommending Cotton Candy Massacre and the slob. And um, I'd seen the slob around. So I was like, oh, I'll check out Aaron Beauregard. Read the slob, loved it. Read Pizza Face, loved it. Read that. And now I've got like a bunch of his other books. Yeah. So I have a thing where I get, I end up wanting to inhabit the world with them a little bit longer. And with Cotton Candy, I remember actually sending to my like beta reader and such partner, like, I thought this was going to be like a 60,000 words at most book. We're getting to like 30, 40,000 words. We're still not at the House of Bonco yet. They're still not like got the cotton candy. It's like, I need to get these kids here, but I can't just cut them there. They're all got their own path through the <laughs> carnival. I've got to get them organically. Mm-hmm. Like, I had a map of Bonkin's Bonanza I drew up, and I'd like, I was like moving little like cut Chess like, pieces around saying, okay, well, Rocky's here right now. So he's got to get to here by this chapter. Like, how does he get there and stuff like that? So it was everything's organic, and the whole book takes place almost in real time. So I found it difficult to both structurally cut away from things but also because i just want i like having fun with them i like their shenanigans as much as i like the splatter like when candy goes into the fortune teller tent and lee and clark can't find her and she's standing outside she's like have you seen my daughter candy she's about this high like <laughs> like making out she's even smaller than she yeah, is uh-huh. stuff like that i just love mm-hmm. yeah well it was a or it is i should say a great book and so I wanted to get into some of your previous works as well. You've touched on Virgin Night a few times. Tell me just a little bit about My Zombie Sweetheart, just to whet the uh, listeners' appetites if they're not familiar with your bibliography. So Zombie Sweetheart was my very first novel, the first book. I wrote that. It's going on two years old now. feels a lot longer than that. It originally started as I was like a film student, and this was like a screenplay that I'd written. Okay. I tried all manner. I've always been into telling stories ever since I was a little kid, but I tried all manner of ways of like writing a book and stuff. It didn't work for me, like trying to write, you know, like a literary writer, trying to be like a Stephen King style writer. I couldn't find a voice that felt like me and it was, I would never get past a single page done. Then I had this idea, well, I learned how to write, I did film studies and filmmaking and I specialize in screenwriting. And I wrote this like 1950s-esque B-movie. It's like, why don't you try and adapt that into a book? And I was originally starting to sit down with it. I was taking all this screenplay stuff out and I was changing the tense and everything. I went, just leave it in and see how it works. People say like, my books read like film scripts. There's a lot of film stuff that I cut out that would make it more difficult to read, like for fun. So like, I don't structure dialogue the way you would in a script or I don't like specify locations and scenes within scenes and like 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 when structuring a scene. But I keep some of it and I keep like the cut twos and the pans and things like that as a nod. And I keep it written in the same tense that you would write a screenplay in. 
Zombie Sweetheart came from my love of like 1950s B movies and like old black and white movies, things jank bugs or aliens and stuff like that. And essentially the story of Buddy and Susie, who were their best friends when they were children. But as they become teenagers, they're separated apart by social standards of the 1950s. And Susie is an all-American dance queen, popular blonde cheerleader type. And Buddy is both introverted, nerdy, and of like mixed race origin. Like his father's black and his mother's from mixed heritage. Because it gets into the, the laws and the, the sort of miscegenation laws from that time period where different races couldn't cohabit. So even though it's lighthearted in a lot of places and it's very much like what if uh, the, what if it was the kids from Greece in Night of the Living Dead, there's a lot of social commentary running through the book dealing with those issues and like racial prejudice and mistreatment and it's probably not as authentic to the 1950s as, I mean, it certainly never would have been actually made in the 1950s with an interracial relationship at the forefront of the book and um, some of the content in it. But it's the first book I wrote and quite a few people have said it's both wholesome and gruesome, which I think has become my vibe. Mm. <laughs> like there's lots of cutesy moments in the stuff I like to do and then it's just nasty, nasty gore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a good juxtaposition. It's a fair bit shorter than the later books I would go on to write. I think it came in about 60,000, 70,000 words. So it's only about 200 odd pages. It's a little bit of a shorter read. Okay. Well, so what I've heard you say so far about Virgin Night was there's some, you know, like you were talking about social commentary in this book it has to do with homophobia. Yeah. So Virgin Night takes place in the 90s. And it's a meta comedy team slasher that was meant to be like a fusion of American Pie and Scream. Like, I think I saw one person comment saying, you know, that bit in American Pie where they all swear to lose their virginity on prom night. Mm. It's like that, but they're going to go kill a slasher instead. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty much exactly what I was trying to do with it. I wanted it to be extremely juvenile in ways. Like there's a running joke throughout the book where one character always makes like sex jokes about the other character's sister mm-hmm. <laughs> like like really inappropriate stuff there's a whole like load of unused your sister jokes <laughs> that i never actually put in the book because uh, every time i would think when i would write it down you need to publish those separately <laughs> <laughs> so um that the plot of that is the town cherry lake is home to like a very financially lucrative mega church the church on the lake and they live with the shadow of a supernatural slasher as just being a part of, of their life. So they know that every February 13th is virgin night. And if anyone has like sex on that night, the killer will be summoned. They don't know exactly his origins. It's kind of lost in history. And there's a chapter where they always like sort of share urban legends about it. And they talk over each other's story and they interrupt and then they like fudge the details as they go along. Like one character is like quite an unreliable narrator and his time period changes during his telling. So the plot is that they are going to lose their virginity, you know, have sex. It doesn't matter whether it's virginity or not to bring forth this slasher and then attempt to kill him. So to begin with, it centers on three main characters, three teenage boys who are her best friends because they're almost have to be because they're all completely outsiders. Mm-hmm. So you have one boy who is actually the son of the pastor who runs the church, but due to sort of his uh, neurodiversity, he doesn't fit in and he doesn't connect very well with that thing. And he represents this idea of religion versus faith. 
So he's very like real with his faith. He really believes in God and he's very like do the right thing. Whereas his father runs the church and he's far more a businessman and religion is a business to him. So the second of the three boys, Caleb, is, as he would call it, a gingerbread pit because he's very cocky and very, not full of himself, but he's seemingly very confident, but it masks a great deal of insecurity. Mm -hmm. He lives in a trailer park with his abusive father who is extremely violent towards him, particularly because Caleb is very openly gay. And the third member of their group, Vincent, he, his father was murdered or killed by the slasher the last time he was summoned. Mm. Like his father gave his life heroically in a way that quite a few readers have been upset about because they found his father, Jimmy Tran, to be a very likable, very heroic, very kind man. And what I did to him was not cool. <laughs> so uh, just saying the phrase, oh, Jimmy, to them gets them upset. Fun, uh, fun Easter egg. Jimmy the hero, hero cop that dies, the father that dies in the opening of Virgin Night. That's him with the, on the first date with his future wife at the start of the Cotton Candy Massacre in the carnival, the one that wins the teddy bear at the oh, shooting range. okay. I had to put that in because a few people who read Virgin Night says, can you please write just somewhere in another book, Jimmy and Debbie being happy together for like five minutes, please. Uh. <laughs> Because you tore them apart at the beginning of that book, and we never got to see them being happy again. Uh huh. Well, good on you. So that's a this, that's a good thing to do for the readers. So Vincent is tormented and severe anger management issues because of what happened to his father, mm. losing his father. This and he gets in a lot of fights. He's, he gets in a lot of trouble, and he's, he directs his anger in the wrong places. And ultimately, he comes to the conclusion that the only way he's ever going to deal with this is to take the anger to the person that caused us all. So they get in their heads that they're going to summon the killer and they're going to take him out. And out of like the, you know, their loyalty to their friends, the, the other two boys agree to it. The fourth element to that is a girl called Casey. I've mentioned my partner, Casey. I wrote this before I met her. Okay. <laughs> and the character of Casey in this book is scarily like her. Really? Okay. Yeah, I'm a bit worried. Like, if I'm bringing things to life, then... Um, just watch out for Ruth. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Isn't there a movie about that? <laughs> Casey is someone that Caleb was speaking to online in the good old dial-up days of AOL. Oh, God. So she comes to the town, like, fully aware of what's involved and what's going on. And there is, without spoiling it, she's up to something. She's got an angle that she's working as well that comes out steadily through the course of the book. And the four of them basically... For the first half of the book, there's a bit of a mole rats-esque messing around as they try and get, as their plans for a virgin night kind of go astray just by sheer stupidity. And then halfway through the book, it switches gears into full-on slasher territory when, yeah, the supernatural slasher is summoned and he goes on like a stalking rampage through the town. But then there's like a lot of wheels turning that virgin night and a lot of people had schemes and plans operating this virgin night and they all come like crashing together. And what's ultimately probably the highest body count i'll ever write in a book (laughs) (laughs) that's funny well what about uh i believe it's goons and grease paint so i wanted to try and do something a bit more fun with marketing and try to get interest in the cotton candy massacre Mm -hmm. grease paint is in clown makeup i'm assuming yeah 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 so I don't really write a lot of short stories. You've seen how long my books get. Like I'm, <laughs> I find it difficult to keep them concise. But You're very thorough. <laughs> I did this one for the Cotton Candy Massacre to do it as a little bit of a prequel 
but you can enjoy it either way. Okay. So it centers on Bonko in the 70s and what he was basically like as a crime lord. It's got more of a sort of grindhouse aesthetic to it. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. I'd love to hear more about Bonko. So it's only about 5,000 words, so it's a very short read. And it's essentially about two people, one person who is one of like Bronco's prostitutes and her partner who get it in their head how easy it would be to rip him off and steal like the money from the backyard of the carnival for that weekend and run away with it. And then they find out very quickly that, no, you don't do that to Bronco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it also introduces another character from the Cotton Candy Massacre whose background I didn't get a chance to fully explore in the book because it would have just weighed it down a bit more but it fleshes them out a little bit more and you see where they came from well at the time of this recording or the day of this recording which is october 8th you have a new book that came out october 1st i believe right yep okay so that would be the october society volume two which of course there is a volume one so is this i think it's a collection of short stories right sort of sort of okay I can't do anything normal. <laughs> well, is it something you release every October? That's the plan. I hopefully will get season three for next October. I've got the stories in my head, what the stories will be. It's just keeping them under control and yeah. making them work because maybe some of them are a bit bigger than the word counts will allow. So even though they're technically short stories, I actually don't think they're technical short stories. No October Society story is less than about 7,000 words. What makes a novelette? I think it's over 7,500. So close to just a collection of novelettes? A couple of the stories in season two are like 10,000 words each. And is that a novella? That'd be about 20,000, 15,000 to 20,000, I think. Oh, okay. So I think there are more in the novelette territory. So they're not particularly short. I often feel like I'm the bit from the Babadook where she's just screaming, just can't you be normal? And I'm in the back of the car going, no, no. Because the October Society is both a novel and a short story collection. When I finished my Zombie Sweetheart and I released it, I released it like in October. One little regret I had was, well, I did set the story around October and there's Halloween decorations in the school. Mm. I just felt like I was window dressing and I wanted like a story that was dripping with Halloween atmosphere. And I was thinking of like all the Halloween stuff I loved as a kid and the spooky stuff I loved as a kid. So like, are you afraid of the dark and goosebumps? I'm like, that's what I'll do next. I'll do something like that. And I'd been experimenting with this idea, which I also used in Virgin Night, of characters who are telling a story, but other people interrupting their stories and maybe altering the flow of their story as it goes. Mm. So that happens in one chapter in Virgin Night when they're telling the legends of Cherry Lake and they'll correct each other and they'll like make fun of each other's telling. In the October Society is structured like six kids gather at Halloween in the weeks leading up to Halloween to tell a story around the fire, each one taking a turn every week. And I wanted to make sure that each kid that tells a story, the story feels like it's coming from them, not from me. So they're all distinct in that they all have their own language. Some of them are like more American in their tellings. Others will be more European. So like there's a Welsh girl who uses Welshisms in her story. And season two introduces an English boy into the group and he has... Even though his story takes place in America, he's got more of like an English sensibility with his language in the way he speaks. But the characters during the stories will interrupt each other and they will talk over each other and they will make comments and they'll like pick on each other. Like there's like some bickering going on between them and arguments. Or sometimes they'll be nice to each other and they'll be like, oh yeah, that was cool. <laughs> and they'll interrupt. The stories are structured with an ad break in the middle. Uh, 
<laughs> like an actual one or fictional yep. one? They're fictional ones because they're either just like tongue-in-cheek jokey little ones or they're Easter eggs for either other books in my series or Easter eggs for like friends, other authors and stuff, uh, people I know. Um, season two in particular features a fake trailer I done as like a Robert Rodriguez style action movie for my friend Jamie Stewart's uh, short story, The Woman Under the White Tree, which is a very sort of serious Irish gothic ghost story. And I set up a pre-apology and went, yeah, I'm going to ruin, I'm going to do something very silly with this. And I made it like Robert Rodriguez style action movie with Jared Butler in it. <laughs> <laughs> like an Uzi wielding Monsignor. <laughs> That's funny. And his is like about like an older like statesman priest teaching a younger priest how to do an exorcism. And I turned it into like a gun-toting machete style fake trailer. <laughs> nice. And then I did like a, I did a serial, well, it was kind of a serious one for, I believe you've had Brittany Johnson on. Uh-huh. So I did basically like a HBO style trailer for Mississippi Blue as a, oh, as a okay. TV show with like David Duchovny and stuff in it as, um, or like, or like it's Twin Peaks-esque, like style uh-huh. actor. So that's in season two as well. Okay. Yeah. So, so you've got the ad breaks, but there was also adverts in it, like that tease future books. There's always like a tease of a future book in any of my books, but the adverts in October Society sometimes tease back, sometimes tease forward and maybe introduce future villains or future locations or like a good example was in season one, there was a trailer for The Church on the Lake, which went on to be the big feature of Virgin Night. But it's also Candy sees that trailer on advert on TV at the start of Cotton Candy Massacre and turns it off to formally embed it in the world. So the October Society takes place both within the realm of the other books and outside it because it's more for kids it's more separate okay sounds like you've kind of got this meta narrative going on outside of everything there is there's sort of like a big bad villain being slowly built through the books kind of thanos style and it was a throwaway joke in one book where i made a joke about a god of the reels or something like that like messing around and making these movies and then a couple of the people that like read my book started talking about that as if it was a real thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's a real thing. I totally <laughs> meant that from the beginning. <laughs> so that got expanded a little bit in Cotton Candy when they actually explained the urban legend of like a crazed film director, producer. And he's the one that leaves the, the strange little messages here or there in the books, like at the very last page of Cotton Candy. And he's got like a very brief appearance in season two of the October Society, but season two of the October Society also introduces him in a roundabout way, in a fictionalized way. Well, what attracted you to the genre of horror to begin with? Uh, I have to blame my mom for that. Blame your mom for that? Yeah. God, I wish my mom was into horror. I had to sneak that stuff around. Oh, I, there was an element of that. I remember sneaking into the living room and hiding behind the couch while my mom was watching Predator. Well, see, my mom would never be watching horror movies, period. That's why I had to sneak them. <laughs> my mom read Clyde Barker, Stephen King and everything. That's where it all started. Richard Lehman, that's where it all started. But I remember sneaking down one night and she was watching Predator and no idea what was going on, but I thought it was so cool and I was sitting watching it. And she caught me. How old were you? I was probably about five or six or something. Okay. So she was like, tell me, I was like, you shouldn't be, you're supposed to be in your bed and stuff like that. And I was like, I didn't care. I was in trouble because I loved the movie that much. I was like asking, what was that? What was that? What was that? Like, what was it when all the colors were funny when they, <laughs> when they were seeing red? And my mom just had this brilliant idea to like this brilliant parental moment where she's like, I can use this. She went, that's 
where the predator can see if people are bad or not. And the more red they are, the worse they are. So you better be good or the predator will see <laughs> And you were so, traumatized for life. <laughs> so I was a good boy for like a, a week or so. Uh, then you got over it. <laughs> yeah, it's not like someone at school had seen it and then told me, no, you idiot, that's heat vision. I just came home like, you lied to me, mother. I've been good for a solid week for heat vision. <laughs> this is Scotland. Heat vision doesn't work here. Yeah. <laughs> Well, your other books, it sounds like there's a lot of the same characters, a lot of the same dynamics, but as far as like gore and violence, do your other books, are they quite as extreme as the Cotton Candy Massacre? See, this is a weird one. I've got reviews for Cotton Candy Massacre that say it was so sick and disgusting, but they loved it. Mm. And other people saying that the violence and gore was quite mild. Really? Well, I mean, it's not gratuitous. You know, it's not like it's every other page, some god-awful things happening, but... There's like, you know, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but like one person's particular demise involving water was a pretty graphic description that like stuff like that. Is there anything as extreme as that in your other novels? Uh, probably. I'm not the best judge of it. I thought my zombie sweetheart was like quite young adult friendly. So someone pointed out, you have a character's face getting chewed off. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah yeah i did but also you have a, a chapter called the all night diner massacre mm-hmm. and it lives up to the name i'm like yeah i think i'm not the best judgment of how extreme they are i don't think virgin night or zombie sweetheart would be on the same level of cotton candy for both the frequency and the level of violence there is one scene in virgin night that's like absolute chaos it's a huge set piece with a lot going on and a lot of violence but that's definitely i would i think it's gory but not as extreme same as zombie sweetheart it's there but it's not as prevalent and it's not as extreme and october society is like pg-13 i advertise that as so there's maybe a couple of gruesome scenes in october society here or there but not something you wouldn't see on like a kid's show so there's a there's actually a story in season one of the October Society that takes place in the same drive-in as Zombie Sweetheart, where there's again like a the zombies like attack the kids during a like a drive-in screening of the blob, and it's sort of like the events of that are now haunting that drive-in. And what was fun challenge was writing that for a child's perspective, for a young reader's perspective, to rewrite the scenes and the stuff in that, but to tone it down enough that it's acceptable for a younger reader. That was that was fun. That was different. So it's there, but it's not as a grizzly well with the exception of you know just the act of writing repetition just doing it jumping into the water so to speak how did you learn the craft of writing uh, so i was always like trying to do stories from the youngest age mm-hmm. like it's uh, sort of like a natural inclination to wanting to write and tell stories i used to like get little notebooks and i would like doodle the front of them be like notebook of the dead <laughs> and write like terrible terrible juvenile <laughs> stories in it about haunted curses and goosebumps ripoffs. I was notorious in school for I would write a horror story for anything. My high school English teacher hated me for it. <laughs> he was very anti-horror. Mm-hmm. Like he anytime I would read a horror book for like silent reading or like literature studies, it would be he would just say, You're better than this. You could do better than this. And it's like, no, this is what I want to do. That always amazes me when people are not able to objectively view the craft of a horror story because of its content. Like, yeah. like a Stephen King novel, it's objectively well-written, but they think it's garbage because of the content. 
And oftentimes, like, what they view as, like, appropriate content is, like, actual real-world horrible stuff that I find a lot more upsetting Yeah, than, like, a bunch of killer clowns running around a carnival throwing razor-blade-lined pies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, I mean, even somebody as extreme and gory as Aaron Beauregard, like, you know, I'm sure... That same guy, if he read one of his books, he'd be like, oh, this is just absolute garbage. But if there was like a literary critic that was able to park his aversion to extreme content, there's no way they wouldn't say, well, no, this is objectively well-written, well-crafted book. I would say the same for your book as well, obviously. So, yeah. Thank you. Strange. (laughs) So I was notorious for any writing assignment would become a horror story. And I could see the look of disappointment in his face when he would get my story and he would just look up from his desk and shake his head. <laughs> and he tried his hardest to stop me from doing it. Like when we were reading like the adventures of Huck Finn, like imagine like a different stop on their river, like when they're going down the river on the raft. Just imagine they stop somewhere else and tell me what happened. Uh, wouldn't you know it? Um, for me, they happened to find a mansion that was uh, owned by a mad scientist who'd brought the dead back to life in a Resident Evil knockoff because I was obsessed with Resident Evil at the time. And, um, one time we was like, I'll meet you halfway. And the writing assessment was like the horrors of war. So we were reading a book that was like about the Vietnam War. We wanted to like basically write it, to, like write a story about a soldier during the Vietnam. And I'm like, he thought war was hell. <laughs> till the soldier, the dead soldiers and enemies started coming back to life. It's <laughs> <laughs> an awesome tagline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that one got a look. I do remember one type was specifically at Halloween. He says, okay, write a scary story. Zombies, because I was obsessed with zombies at that point. Zombies, dead, coming back, whatever. I think I wrote like the most mundane story about it. It like a zombie coming back for a cup of tea with his mum. Yeah. And it was just like, <laughs> you have to be difficult, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should still flesh that one out. <laughs> oh, and then when I got in my Blair Witch phase, then that was it. All my stories were found footage horror stories. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from the brief, brief time where I became really into anime, mm-hmm. where everything just became all these anime-esque stories as a teenager, I thought was even worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of these different influences in your writing, Terrascope Studios, is that like an actual small press or is that just kind of your artistic concept? Oh, like a lot of things I've said today, there was a total accident. Okay. <laughs> so the artist who did the zombie sweetheart cover um i said like put some text on it like it's an old drive-in poster like used to say like presented in whatever scope so uh presented in terror scope just oh, as a, okay. an offhand comment okay so she put that on the cover and i thought oh, that's quite cool then one of the first people that was ever reading my books and was like a, a reader as a good friend rob he read zombie sweetheart and he left a review on Goodreads, and I think he said something like, can't wait for my next journey through the Terrascope. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh shit, it's a brand. I've accidentally created a brand. <laughs> it's definitely a brand, yeah. Where have I seen the face, the logo before? That's kind of like reminiscent of like maybe 50s adverts. So that logo was created for me by um, Andrew Robert of Darklit Press. Mm-hmm. Honestly, he'd be a great one for this podcast he's like small press small publisher he's putting out incredible amount of work incredible stuff and big range of things mm-hmm. and he's so helpful and he's so uplifting to others within the horror community it's like he just did that for me as an act of kindness like i'm now i've got a book coming from dark Lit press next year this is before that it was just because he's a cool guy mm-hmm. 
and he does these logos. So I said, I think I said something about getting a logo done. And he says, yeah, I can do one for you. What do you want it to look like? And I'm like, give me something that's kind of like 1950s B-movie, maybe like a William Castle type director or something like that. Because mm-hmm. that's the sort of villain of the Terrascope universe is a notorious film director, producer, studio executive that's got a lot of mystery surrounding him. So that's kind of who it's meant to be on the cover thing. But he's got like the weird extra eye because he's not quite human. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure who it's meant to be, but he did that <laughs> design right away and I fell in love with it. And I was like, yeah, I'm putting it on a t-shirt. <laughs> nice. And I started putting all my books and I was like, yes, it's a really cool fit for the brand. And it's kind of nice to put the actual villain on all the, the logos and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. It's pretty cool. So we kind of fell into it backwards where it became a brand. It almost became a, a go-to word for the style of the stories because I've written stories that aren't in the Terrascope style that I'm calling it, uh, but I much prefer writing them in that sort of full movie style. So the book I've got coming from Dark Blood Press is called uh, Black Flags and Devil Birds, and it's part of the series of pirate-themed horror that Andrew's putting together. And so it's not written like a fake movie, but it is written, it is meta, it's someone telling the story to you who will interject here and there during the it's like a story being told in a pub like a tavern but a bunch of pirates and the, the general premise is these pirates end up washed up on an island filled with dinosaurs it's Jurassic Park meets Pirates of the Caribbean so it's not movie style but it is still intended as somewhat like a toe in that universe in a weird way that I can't really explain without spoiling the fun of it alright well spoken a lot about your writing what is the life of Christopher Robertson like outside of writing Oh, pretty boring. Pretty boring? <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a day job that's quite the yeah. service to uh, your fellow man and woman. <laughs> you know, it's a very rewarding job, and it's very fun at times, and it's definitely a balancing act. You have to deal with some difficult things and things that are very much challenge and a lot of long hours working on your own. But then it's a lot of really rewarding things, not just like the cool stuff you get to do with people now and then. It's just like I had a, a gentleman that, I was supporting just decided he wanted to learn to read and over the, like, the course of about two years I helped um, develop to get a level of literacy as far as he could to the point where he can now read like comic books and stuff with some assistance oh wow so nice. like he'll sit with you and he's able to read things and he asks for help with words he doesn't understand and things and it's a, amazing for him now that he's got an actual little bookshelf in his room and he's collecting books and he's got like comic books graphic novels he's got a couple of Goosebumps books to be able to like also like help develop literacy, help them share those things. That's probably the most rewarding, the most like biggest, I guess, achievement is for doing that work. I mean, they gave me an award for it, which felt weird because I was just doing my job. Yeah, but you know, well deserved, I'm sure. But evidently, they give awards like crazy because my dog won one. <laughs> what did your dog win an award for? Uh, so my dog actually, he comes to work with me. He's a little miniature Dachshund. Oh, is he a Dachshund. therapy yeah. dog? Yeah, so he fell into that line of work as well. So I ended up bringing him in one day just to see, just so they could see him. And from that day on, it was like, where's the dog? Where's the dog? Where's the dog? Where's the dog? So he just comes into work now as well. And he spends all day like switching between who he's going to hang around with and who he's getting pets by in the summertime. <laughs> like to take him for walks and stuff like that. And one year we were like, had our staff awards ceremony and everything with nominations. And I thought I'd be funny and I'd write him in for volunteer of the year. Oh, well, he won. Nice. <laughs> and I had to go and bring my dog to an award ceremony. <laughs> Did he have like a tux, like the little 
No, because I thought they were joking. I didn't think they were serious. <laughs> and then I got there and I showed up in like the area manager's like, where's Dexter? And I went, well, he's at home. I went, he's getting the award. And I went, no, he's not. And I went, yeah, he's getting the but go get your dog. And I'm like, so you had to turn around. <laughs> I had to go home and get the dog. And bring oh, him in. That's funny. And then there's like a photo of him getting his little plaque and he's got, he's getting his award and he's got like a stuffed toy being given it by a person that was helping, like a person that we supported that helps run the event. So like being included and being inclusive is part of like everything is a big sort of like part of what we do. And the CEO was there giving my dog an award and I'm in the photo holding my dog up and my dog's just posing like oh I'm loving this and I'm just like you can see my face I'm like what the hell is going on <laughs> that's awesome so I've learned not to be funny with uh, filling in these forms in the <laughs> well I'm sure it was well deserved <laughs> the downside is I've got a dog that knows he's award winning now so he doesn't let me forget it uh-huh. well Christopher it has been a pleasure talking with you well thank you for having me it's kind of blowing me away that people want to listen to me ramble (laughs) definitely very interesting conversation so as we bring the show to a close is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about i mean obviously you've got uh, the brand new book out yeah i think i've kind of talked enough about the other books that i've got and obviously what i've got coming up next year i've got one unannounced novella which i'm hoping will be a start of the year I've got my pirate novel, which should be around about the middle of the year. And hopefully I get the October Society 3 out for the next Halloween. I've got a couple of little surprises I'm working on, things that will get announced in time. One of the things being that Terrascope might be slightly steering it towards being an actual publisher of other content. Oh, nice. It's already a cool brand. You might as well make it a small press. (laughs) I've been a little bit fortunate lately and I want to give back in a little way so if i can find a home for some like fellow indie writers work and give them some opportunities i want to try and do that because there's a lot of talent out there there's a lot of great people like jamie stewart i mentioned i wouldn't be writing the books that i'm writing right now if jamie stewart hadn't found to pick one of my short stories and put it in an anthology he was editing and introduced me to so many people that have helped me on the way there's other writers i've met along the way like Brittany johnson with mississippi blue that was a fantastic book friend Damien Casey with his like wild bizarro novels <laughs> crazy fun stuff <laughs> like um, incredible people I've met through this like I met my current partner Casey I love dearly I met her through my writing uh, I met a good friend Brett Laurie who edited the October Society season 2 and he's going back to edit my earlier books that I couldn't afford a professional editor at the time and now I'm going back and retroactively doing things right Great people like Kelly Brocklehurst who edited the Cotton Candy Massacre and gave me a chance. Lots of people, Andrew Roberts, so many great people. I'm probably missing out so many people, so many people that deserve a plug. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Christopher, thank you again for joining me. Well, thank you. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.
Just pretend that maybe one day you will spend